This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. This week, we look at the first regular effects of contact between Otago Māori and the early sealers and whalers. Dunedin's Botanic Garden has been the site of several historic places. And the Southern Heritage Trust has big plans for a Dunedin Heritage Festival next year. And Gregor Campbell has found a mysterious building on the Otago Peninsula. The first regular contact between Otago Māori and the early sealers and whalers did not end well. Bill Southworth has been looking at this fatal connection, which saw many Māori either die from European diseases or become slaves to alcohol, permanently trapped into a degraded lifestyle. When the first tentative contacts were made by European sealers with the Otago Māori in the 1800s, there were estimated to be thousands of them living in the province, with hundreds settled round the bays and inlets of Otago Harbour. In addition, there were probably two to three hundred living in Karatani Waikoaiti and another hundred at Tairi Mouth. It has been estimated that there was possibly a total of up to 5,000 living in the Otago and Southland area. The sealing period did not last long as an intensive slaughter of the animals so reduced the herds that within a few years the trade had died out. In his book, The History of Otago, Dr A.H. McClintock writes... The whole of the southern coastline of the South Island, from the western fjords to the Otago beaches, was the resort of sealers, colonial, English and American, who, without any guiding principle except indiscriminate killing and freed from the restraining influence of the law, surrendered to the lust of slaughter and the lure of wealth. Every inlet was the scene of frenzied butchery, made more terrible by the passivity of the victims. The large American sealing vessel, the Favourite, reached Sydney in 1806 with a cargo of 60,000 seal skins said to have been procured on the east coast of New Zealand. The whaling industry came next. It was attracted by the large number of whales which came along the Otago coast in the breeding season, which lasted from March through October. This was a more substantial industry which required the establishment of shore stations with permanent buildings and accommodation, where the whales could be cut up and their blubber boiled for oil in large rendering pots. Shore stations were established in Otakau by the Willer brothers and at Waikowiti by Johnny Jones in the early 1830s. The presence of these raiding villages and the Maori who were attracted to them led to a tragedy. By the time the Europeans first undertook a census in the 1840s, the Māori population of Otago, which had numbered in the thousands, had dropped to just over 400 survivors. What had happened to cause such a massive decline in their population? Although there had been the odd fatal clash with sealers and whalers and some tribal warfare between Naitahu and the invading North Island tribe Ngāti Taua, these did not account for the catastrophic decline. Unfortunately, the real reason was the earlier contact with hardy but often dissolute crews from whaling ships. They brought with them alcohol and a demand for prostitution, but worst of all, new diseases for which the Māori had no immunity. 
Initially, Māori fell victim to influenza and a small outbreak of smallpox. But the real disaster came in 1835, when there was a serious outbreak of measles. It was reported that Māori Rotakau plunged into the sea in an attempt to cool their fevers. Today, just south of Tokomariru River mouth, there's a memorial to members of a summer camp there who were totally wiped out. The death toll from the disease is estimated to be twice as bad as the Black Death in England in the 14th century, which reduced the English population by almost half. On a hill called Ohinitu, overlooking Otago Harbour, the Naitahu chief Tuawaiki was later to reminisce to settlers. This was one of our largest settlements, and it was beyond even the reach of Te Rauparaha. We lived secure and feared no enemy. But one year, when I was a youth and a ship came from Sydney, and she brought the measles amongst us, it was winter as it is now. In a few months, most of the inhabitants sickened and died. Whole families on this spot disappeared and left no one to represent them. My people lie all around us. And now you can tell Colonel Wakefield why we cannot part with this portion of our land. The Weller whaling establishment at Otakau was the largest in the country. In 1835, it had 11 boats, staffed with a crew of 85, most of whom were European. It also built dozens of buildings, and it had the look of a thriving village. More than 100 whales were killed, some within the harbour. The boom didn't last, as the whales were beginning to abandon their ancient sanctuaries. Overkilling at Johnny Jones's station at Moraki also saw the whales avoiding their breeding grounds, and it too was in a state of financial collapse by 1845. Within a decade, the Weller village was abandoned, leaving behind deserted buildings fast falling into decay. Two houses had been transformed into public houses, where Māori were said to spend their money as soon as they were paid for gardening and other work. The prices for the liquor, usually brandy, which was said to be vile, were sold at highly exorbitant prices. The whalers had a reputation for depravity and drunkenness. Although this may have been overdone, thanks to the stories of narrow-minded Wowser missionaries who visited from time to time, it is true some were dissipated and threw away their wages on highly priced booze, which was distributed at company stalls in lieu of wages. One ship discharged 120 tonnes of liquor at Waikawaiti when there were only 40 Europeans there. Māori developed a thirst for European liquor, becoming addicted to it and started hanging around the whaling stations, spending the wages they were paid for for gardening and other tasks for more and more alcohol. Visitors came to notice that many Māori now dressed in rags and looked depressed and dilapidated, a forlorn remnant of the flourishing tribes that used to populate the area. In their book called Early Dunedin, Māori Gordall and George Griffiths observed that the ravages of disease and the demoralisation of traditional ways of life through contact with the riffraff of the whaling stations severely affected Otago Māori. To Hawaiki, a local chief told George Clark, sub-protector of Aborigine, when he arrived to supervise the purchase of land in 1844, We are but a poor remnant now, but even in my time we were a large and powerful tribe. On another occasion, Chief Tuawaiki said, We had a worse enemy, 
even in Taraupataha, and that was the visit of the Pākehā with his drink and his disease. You think us very corrupted, but the very scum of Port Jackson shipped as whalers or landed as sealers on this coast. What had played out was a familiar and depressing scene, typical of many colonisations. The fatal impact caused by an indifference to the needs of an indigenous race and the clash of incompatible civilizations. This is Bill Southworth reporting. Dunedin's Botanic Garden has been the site of several historic places. The Winter Gardens, the Wolf Harris Fountain, and possibly the most splendid of them all, the Bandstand, which is sometimes known as the Sound Shell or the Rotunda. This report from Sarah Gallagher. The Dunedin Botanic Garden is Aotearoa New Zealand's oldest such garden and has been recognised by the New Zealand Gardens Trust as a garden of international significance. Prior to European settlement, Māori knew the area well. The water of Leith, or Feo, was named for Kāti Māmoi chief Feo, and his kaik was located a block south of the confluence of Orfeo and Pukihokia, or Lindsay Creek. East of Leith Street, the wooded ridge that extends northwards towards Ōpoho was known as Timana Kapakapa Atiki, and Ōpoho Creek, or Campbell's Creek, spilled down Te Pahuri or Te Rangipohika, Signal Hill, before being diverted into the Orfeo. In 1863, 15 years after the arrival of the Philip Lang and John Wycliffe, the Botanic Garden was established by the Otago Provincial Government. The area included the present site of the University of Otago. In February 1868, North Dunedin was swept by floods and the raging Leith washed away several bridges in much of the Botanic Garden, along with the flood defences then under construction. This was the major impetus for the garden to move to its current site in 1869. Some of the trees from the original site can still be seen, notably the Wellingtonia outside the Burns Building on Albany Street and a cedar and holly trees near the professorial houses on St David Street. Within the grounds of the Botanic Garden are three listed historic places, the Winter Garden, the Wolf Harris Fountain and the Bandstand. Variously referred to as the Rotunda, a pavilion, a kiosk or a sound shell, the current bandstand replaced two earlier iterations. It is situated on the flat at the northern end of the garden between the children's playground and the duck pond. A pavilion had existed in the Botanic Gardens since 1873, prior to the council taking control in 1884. In 1885, a band asked Dunedin City Council for permission to play in the gardens on Sunday afternoons. The council voted against the proposal, with one councillor declaring, If you wish to get something to demoralise the children, you cannot get anything more effective than the playing of the band in the public gardens on the Sabbath day. This bandstand required constant repair, and in 1901 was replaced with a pavilion that had been erected in the octagon for ceremonies associated with the visit of the Duke and Duchess of Cornwall in June that year. The need for a new bandstand had been under discussion since 1906, but hadn't progressed until 1914. It was designed by the City Council's building surveyor, Mr William Goff. Goff was born in Manchester and studied naval architecture under R. Napier and Sons, shipbuilders in Glasgow, as well as under Mrs. D. and W. Henderson & Co., owners of the Anchor Line. 
Clearly a lifelong learner, Goff additionally completed an apprenticeship in civil architecture under George Melrose of Rothsey and studied architecture in Canada and the United States before coming to New Zealand. In 1886, he designed and constructed the SS Tarawera for tourist traffic on Lake Te Ano, as well as other craft. A fellow of the New Zealand Institute of Architects, Goff designed several industrial premises, including May's Confectionery Works on Cumberland Street, many elaborate decorated villas, and a house for the superintendent of the Botanic Garden. The design for the bandstand was one favoured by contemporary musicians in preference to the traditional open rotunda style, and consultation was undertaken with representatives from local bands who approved the plans. Goff described the building. In the form of a stage, closed on three sides and with a proscenium front. This bandstand is the prevailing style in Britain and the continent. The performers are all arranged facing the audience, as in a theatre. I have endeavoured to treat the building in oriental design. The proscenium is flanked on each end with a domed tower, roof covered with Marseille's tile, side walls and ceilings being well-shaped to allow the volume of sound free egress. Jointly funded to the cost of £300 by the Council and the Garden Fate Executive, tenders for the construction were advertised in June 1914. It was officially opened by the Mayor, Mr J.B. Shacklock, in December 1914 and was described as being an additional attraction to the gardens and is splendidly adapted for the holding of open-air concerts. Of course, the official opening at 8pm on that summer evening involved entertainment, which was provided by the Kaikarai Band and Dunedin Orphans Club. Mr J. Rennie, the president of the Garden Fate Committee, remarked it, Occupied an ideal position facing the lawn at the hillside where many thousands of people could assemble and listen to the music of the bands. David Tannock, the superintendent of reserves, who was initially against the rotunda, magnanimously acknowledged it was quite an ornament to the gardens and proved most suitable for the purpose for which it was intended. Despite the proclamation of 1885, the bandstand came to be used every Sunday for live music for years and it remains a prominent feature in the garden which is enjoyed year-round by the public. Sunday bandstand was introduced in the year 2000 and has remained a regular fixture in the city's calendar of events. The bandstand is a registered Category 2 historic place. You can find this story on our Heritage List online at heritage.org.nz. This is Sarah Gallagher, reporting for Heritage Matters. The Southern Heritage Trust has big plans for a Dunedin Heritage Festival next year. But first it will run a smaller version this month on the weekend of November 12 and 13. Anne Barsby from the Trust talked to Bill Southworth about both festivals. Well, for next year, that's the biennial festival, it'll be November. Between seasons, when there's nothing major that we're going to clash with, and it'll be between um, Omaru's festival and Lawrence's, so that there's a a nice flow-on, and we're we're planning to coordinate activities in the region, not just in Eden. So that will be the big festival, but I understand you're going to have one a little closer to time. What's that? It's a couple of weekends, which is raising awareness of Dunedin's heritage and to reinforce that this is important. 
and November is the planned month for the future because so we're wanting. So this is this yeah. coming November, next 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 month. Yes, yes, yes. that's right. <laughs> Very close. And what yeah. dates in November? The twelfth and thirteenth, which is Saturday and Sunday, and then the following weekend, the nineteenth and twentieth, again Saturday and Sunday. And what sort of things will be available uh, this November? Well, there'll be some guided tours. Um, and there'll be four cemetery tours for a start. There'll be guided tours within Dunedin City. What, what actually happens during the cemetery tours? What, 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 is there a guide there that talks about the tombstones? Yes, is that what there's happens? a very, very um, knowledgeable guide about all sorts of aspects of Dunedin's life. And he's researched um, you know, various um, notables and you know ordinary people too, and found out about their stories and their lives, and it's absolutely fascinating. Now I understand the host is uh, Gregor Campbell, mm. and he's the sort of person that can never let a tombstone <laughs> go by without reading it. Is that right? Exactly. <laughs> I think it's his favourite pastime. And uh, presumably he'll talk about some of the famous dead of Dunedin. Yes. Yes, in both the Southern Cemetery and the Northern, and maybe Anderson's Bay. Right. Yeah. And other, other tours? Who's doing those? Um, Adult Park, is um, who does city, guided city tours, and he's you know, got uh, several different um, fascinating topics, and they'll be available too. And, and what sort of things does he take and show people? Um, well, Dunedin's um, landmarks and the lesser-known little laneways and places. And what are some of those landmarks? Well, <laughs> the two cathedrals, St um, Joseph's and St Paul's, and First Church is a highlight um, in terms of early architecture and a famous architect, Robert Arthur Lawson. And then the octagon and the explanation of why things happened and the shoreline and the warehouse precinct and all the reasons why the, those lovely buildings are there and have survived. And uh, will there be tours of some of the um, grand houses, grand old houses of Dunedin? There, there could be, yes. I'm, I'm discussing with one or two people, but um, this is, uh, you can understand a slight hesitancy of it. <laughs> right. So this thing next, next uh, you know, coming November is sort of a dry run for the big festival next year. Yes, that's right. But we're visiting the tours of the jail on both days, both weekends, and also the Priory, which was an incredibly popular tour and fascinating, and King Edward Tech, a technical building. You know, those are confirmed. And, mm. and if people want to find out uh, what's happening and when, where do they do that? It'll be on the website, either the Southern Heritage Trust website or the Facebook page. The Southern Heritage Trust .org.nz and they can find out everything they need to know there. Yes, that's correct. Bill Southworth was talking to Anne Barsby from the Southern Heritage Trust. And Gregor Campbell has found a mysterious building on the Otago Peninsula. In a prominent position on Otago Peninsula is an enigmatic building. It has the appearance of an Art Deco mansion but is uninhabited. Its grounds are neatly kept and it is floodlit at night. What could it be? It was built in the mid-1930s, close to and in conjunction with the nearby 500-foot mast, which increased the broadcast range of Station 4YA Dunedin 
many-fold. The Otago Daily Times sent a reporter to join a tour of the new facility and, if he were brave enough, climb the mast. Climbing 500 feet towards the sky on the Otago Peninsula, the aerial mast of the new transmitting station for 4YA has, by reason of its prominence from all parts of the city, been the object of curious glances for many weeks and the mecca of Sunday walkers and motor drivers. An interesting and instructive tour of the buildings was made by a party yesterday afternoon, the visitors being conducted over the premises by Mr G.T. Cookson, the engineer of Amalgamated Wireless Limited, the contractors for the supply of all material used, Mr H. Ninnis, 4YA station director, and Mr Halcrow, the engineer in charge. On entrance into the transmitting hall, one is faced by the transmitter itself, which in its different stages occupies the whole length of the room. Composed of high black cabinets, the fronts of which are a mass of dials, indicators and switches, it is to the layman an impressive and slightly bewildering structure. On the right of the hall is the power control unit, with its lines of red and green lights and buttons. Here, by means of the signal lights, it is possible to isolate any fault in the transmitter and so save delay when broadcasts are actually taking place. The next stage is the frequency control unit. Contained in it is the most important part of the whole installation, the crystal panel, in which are the two crystals, whence, as a result of mechanical vibrations of the crystals themselves, the radio power is generated. The crystals are kept at an even temperature by means of electricity, any tendency to variation being controlled by a mercury thermostat. They are calibrated to a frequency of 790 kilocycles, the deviation being only 50 cycles per second. The next stage, the 250-watt base unit, incorporates the power amplifier stages and modulator. The system of modulation to the modulated amplifier is by series method, and is the latest practice in broadcast engineering, ensuring high fidelity of tone. It is believed that apart from the new installation, stations 1A Auckland and 3YA Christchurch are the only other places in the Southern Hemisphere, and indeed in the world, where this method is used. The power output of the modulated amplifier is one kilowatt, and in cases of emergency, the amplifier may be coupled direct with the antennae and transmitter. Under these conditions, it derives its power from a petrol-driven power supply without recourse to the city supply at all. The modulated amplifier energises the final lineal stage, which has an output of 10 kilowatts unmodulated. The increase in power up to this stage is from a fraction of a watt to more than 20,000 watts. Two water-cooled tubes are employed, with two spares for cases of emergency. The tuning unit and coupling device on the left of the transmitter conveys the energy from the amplifying units by way of the transmission line to the aerial tuning gear, which is housed at the base of the steel mast. Along the back of the transmitter are the 12,000 and 7,000 volt rectifier units, which convert the alternating current from the city supply to direct current. Beside them is the artificial aerial, which dissipates the energy and allows a certain amount of testing to be carried out without listeners on the air being aware of the fact. The supply charge board, which is placed against the wall at right angles to the transmitter, is similar to the ordinary switchboard in a house, except, of course, that it is very much larger.
all power is switched and metered. So great is the power load in the mains that it is necessary to have a substation within the building itself. Here, in a small room, the power is broken down in three phases from 6,000 volts to 400 volts, only to be converted back to 12,000 volts in the rectifier units at the back of the transmitter. In yet another room is a 124 kilowatt auxiliary alternator driven by a 20 horsepower Gardner engine. Here also we find the filament generators, together with the air and water pumps, all in duplicate, while at the back of the building are the wind tunnels for cooling the water from the plates of the water-cooled valves of the transmitter. In the tunnels are huge radiators, the draft being created by two large fans. An interesting room houses the speech amplifier gear, which controls the voice or music as it goes out over the air. The complicated wiring system in this apparatus is worthy of notice, no fewer than 156 wires being used in the two bottom strips, with a grand total of several hundreds more. The room is entirely screened to keep out as much radio frequency energy as possible. In front of the building, which is built in simple but modern style, is the reservoir, holding approximately 35,000 gallons and the pumping house. With its flat roof on a level with the entrance to the main building, it gives a pleasing and attractive finish to the whole pile. On each side are the houses, which will accommodate the permanent employees at the new station. And above it all towers the huge steel mast. Set on porcelain insulators on an eight-foot base, it rises majestically for 500 feet, and even from halfway up, which was as far as the reporter accompanying the party did go, it commands a wide and comprehensive view of the whole peninsula and the city and suburbs. Ascending the mast is not such a hazardous feat, provided one is comparatively sound in wind and limb and is not prone to dizziness. It then becomes almost enjoyable. A thin steel ladder up the inside of the mast gives good hold for both hand and foot, and encircling loops every 10 or 12 feet allow the climber to lean back and take the rests that become more necessary after he has passed the first 100 feet. At intervals, there are steel platforms, which provide plenty of standing room if a change is required from the monotony of climbing ever upwards. And the panorama which lies revealed when a reasonable height has been attained is well worth the exertion. The Otago Heads and the whole harbour, the sweep of St Clair and St Kilda, several little beaches and coves on the seaward side of the peninsula, and the city and its environs lie spread out below in imposing array. The descent is more difficult and much slower, and one can't help admitting that it is a welcome feeling to have solid ground beneath one's feet. And I am the decidedly solid Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. And finally, a community notice about one of life's essentials. A community consultation event will take place at Market Reserve on Princess Street about the Manor Place toilets on the 19th of November from 10 to 2 p.m., which also happens to be World Toilet Day. The toilets are being considered by Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga for Rarangi Korero. The list. Heritage New Zealand and DCC staff will be on site to chat about its history and to hear your ideas about the future use of this important building.
Details of the event can be found on Heritage New Zealand's Facebook page. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30am and replayed on the following Sunday at 7pm. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1pm and Sunday at 7pm. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere Taonga is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand Check out visitheritage.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.